Good morning. It is my joy to bring God's word to you this morning from the book of Luke. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 15. We will be looking at verses 11 through 32 this morning. Let me pray before we begin. Oh, Father, we come before you this morning and we need you. We need to hear your word and your great gospel must take root in our hearts this morning. O oh, Father, draw us close to yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ. Speak this morning by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear. Give us soft hearts for your truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This is a long passage, so follow along with me in your Bibles or just try to listen attentively because it will go on for a little bit. But we're going to read the entire parable, the famous parable of the prodigal son, which is what we'll be looking at this morning. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to, his, to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son, my son, was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So ends the reading of God's holy word. And we can all go home. Isn't it a beautiful passage and story that we get to hear again this morning? It's so familiar. Most of us have heard this story before, even in our culture, which is no longer a Christian culture. There is still some remembrance of the parable of the prodigal son. That title, at least, still lingers in our cultural memory with some understanding of the story. Right? There was just a recent TV show called The Prodigal Son, which was a failure, I, I heard. But it just proves it's still there. It's still in our memory. We still know something about this. And it is so familiar that we can miss the point as most familiar stories. The word prodigal means reckless or extravagant, and it refers to the prodigality of the younger son who spent all, everything he had in verse 13. And so when we title this parable, or when the English versions of our Bible title this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, it throws us off, honestly. It sets us in a trajectory to see this parable as about the prodigal, solely, almost exclusively. And yet there are, as we just read, two sons in this story. And actually, it is the older son, the one who stayed home and was obedient, that the story zeroes in on and focuses upon at the end, at the climax of the story. And it is actually the point of the story to focus in upon that son. The younger son, we need to recognize right off the bat, represents the sinners who Jesus was eating with, fellowshipping with, and having feasts with. The older son in the story, the obedient son, represents the scribes and the Pharisees who were complaining about the fact that Jesus was fellowshipping with these people. We see that at the beginning of this chapter in verse 1. It says, There all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. It's a response to this complaint, and the complaint is really a veiled accusation. How can a godly man sit at table gladly with such ungodly people? Without, how is he not defiling himself and tarnishing his reputation? And there's also a connection to the previous chapter, chapter 14, which we looked at for a couple weeks. Craig looked at for a couple weeks in a row. And in that chapter, in that, in that chapter, there's a meal, right? There's a meal where Jesus actually attends the house of a top Pharisee. And how does that meal go? It goes horribly, 
really, for the Pharisee. It, 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 goes, it's, it becomes awkward. Jesus blows it up when he attends the house of the Pharisee. And so this complaint is on the back end of that really bad dinner experience of the Pharisees with Jesus. Why is it, Jesus, that you are blowing up our meals and shaming the host, this honorable top Pharisee, and yet you're there with these sinners gladly eating with them, receiving them? Why is that? Who would do such a thing? What godly man would do this? And the complaint has some weight to it because of the fact that these sinners that Jesus is dining with were not sinners, in quotes. They were actual sinners. They weren't just token sinners. They weren't just ritually unclean. They were actually unclean. This group, sinners, was composed of tax collectors and prostitutes, people who made their living by sinning. Stop and think about that. These people made their living by sinning. We know the occupation of prostitutes, but perhaps we need to be reminded about tax collectors. Tax collectors enriched themselves by extorting their fellow Israelites. It was, they were, they were, they were, they took this job knowing that's what they would do. That's how the system was set up. It wasn't actually, it wasn't a bug in the system. It was a feature of the tax system of the day that if you took this job, you're going to extort your fellow man to make your money. And so they took this job knowing they were being traitors to their own, knowing that they would steal from their brothers. So these were messed up people. And Jesus is sitting at table with them. The, the, the complaint has weight to it. So how does Jesus respond to this complaint and accusation? He tells this story. And so we have to ask, what's the purpose of the story? Really, the purpose of the story is not to focus in, it's not primarily about the older brother or the younger brother. Actually, the focus of the story and the purpose of the story is to paint a picture of the Father. To paint this picture of who the Father is. Because the problem with the Pharisees, Jesus says, is he says, you don't know God. If you knew my Father, you would know why I do what I'm doing. That's the point of the parable, is to paint this picture. And so the parable asks people believed they knew God, who prayed to God, who went to synagogue every week and worshipped God, went to all the feasts, knew their Bibles. And Jesus says, ask them this question by this parable. Do you, do you know God? I know you do all this stuff, but do you know God? Hosea 6.6 says, For I desire, God speaking, I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so if we were to take this parable and transfer it to our day, we we would hear Jesus say to us a similar thing. 
Because in reality, this parable was not spoken as an evangelistic sermon. And that's what's so funny about how this parable is often used. It's a great evangelistic sermon, but that wasn't the point. That wasn't the purpose at the time. It was actually given to the churched people. It was given to the leaders, to the pastors. And that's what's so radical about this, is who it was really directed to. It was directed to the people who felt comfortable coming to church, people like us. And so it cha- it's meant to challenge people like us. And when we need to ask ourselves the question as we listen to the story, do I know God? What is my knowledge of God like? How do I view the Father? And so to get at that point and to challenge ourselves, we're going to just look at the story. We're going to break it up into two points. First, we'll consider the running son, and second, the refusing son. So let's look at the running son. Verse 11 says, Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. The very first thing we need to know, or to get straight when we read this parable, is just how terribly offensive this demand was of the younger son to his father. It was not an easy thing to say. The, the people who heard this statement would have gasped. You don't say that to a patriarch of the family. It's essentially like he's saying, Dad, since you won't hurry up and die already, give me my stuff now so I can get on with my life. I'm tired of being under your roof. I'm tired of being under your authority. I want to be my own man. I want to be the master of my own fate. I want out. And so... How would, how would a typical first century sinful father, how would he have reacted to something like this? Right? That, that, would have been, that would have been expected from a typical first century patriarch because he would have seen this as a threat to his autocratic control over the family. But this father is not a control freak. This father is not your typical autocratic, power-tripping patriarch. This father lets his son have his share and lets him go his way. And there's there's no words from the father in this. He lets him have what he wants. And the son immediately runs. He immediately despises the inheritance he got. Because what did he get? He got land. And land was valuable and precious and an amazing thing to have. It's part of the family estate. He got land and he says, I don't care about the land. I want the money. And he liquidates it into cash and he goes to a far country, as far away as he can from home. He runs. And this, these words, far country, they would have had an ominous ring to them for the hearers. Because Wherever this place was, it was far away from Israel. It was far away 
from Jerusalem, the city of God, the temple of God, and the farther you got away from the city of God and the temple of God, the darker the situation got, the darker the moral and spiritual darkness. And so a God-fearing Jew would have seen a, a place far from the presence of the Lord, far away from the Father's house, would have seen this as, well, a curse, a place of exile. And yet this son runs to it. He sees it as a place of opportunity. And in this distant land, he has no accountability. He has no family connections. He has all the money he needs, and he has everything available at his fingertips. And so it's all too much. It's all too easy for him. And he squanders everything. He scatters his property. He scatters his inheritance. He scatters his wealth in reckless living. So this son plays the part of the fool, right? The Bible continually warns us that if you act like a fool and you chase the pleasures of this world, you will destroy yourself. There's nothing but destruction there. And he completely embraces the value of the fool and he is reckless with his life. He doesn't take any thought to the future. And so when the, just the normal changes of the seasons happen, right? when famine comes, when a time of want comes, which everyone knew, this happens right, in, this day, in that day. He wasn't prepared for it at all. And he ends up having to hire himself out and ends up feeding pigs, a most despicable occupation for a Jew, a most degrading occupation. He's wallowing in uncleanness spiritually, morally, physically dirty, and he's starving to death. Verse 16 says he longed to eat his fill of the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. See how graceless this far country is? No one would give him anything. What a vivid picture of where a life dedicated to sin and self-gratification leads, right? Jesus paints this picture. Here is where sin is taking you. It's taking all of us there. When we give ourselves to it, it never is not leading us into deprivation. Some destroy their lives in actuality. But sin, no matter what, is always leading us into deprivation because the more we indulge in sin and give ourselves to sin, the more we're trying to feed ourselves with sin, the more we consume, the more we waste away. That's the nature of sin. That's the nature of it. God says that the pleasures and values of this world are broken cisterns that can hold no water. Broken water tanks in the desert that you're trying to fill up and store up for yourself so you have what you need. And every time you pour a new bucket in, it vanishes because they're broken. There's nothing there. That's what sin is. And this is where the self-life leads. And so this, this younger son finds himself there at his lowest And the hidden grace in the story comes in verse 17, right? Verse 17, he came to himself. He came to himself and he sees now how foolish he's been, how good he had it at his father's house. 
And he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I'm perishing. I'm starving to death here. And so what does he do? He says, I'm going to give a speech to my father. I'll say this to my father. I'll work for you. Just hire me. Just hire me as a laborer. That's all I'm asking. See, his view of his father at this point changes. He now sees his father as good, but it's still inadequate. Even in his repenting, even in his turning, he doesn't have a great enough view of the father's love and care. He, he thinks he has to give this speech. He thinks he has to work for him. He's not sure how he'll be received. He doesn't want to meet his father's gaze. Why is that? Because a typical, sinful, first century father would probably take the opportunity when he sees his son coming back to ball him out, to tell him, how he squandered everything, to list off his failures, to publicly shame him so that his honor could be vindicated. And he could be seen in the presence of the community. I was right. Look at this fool. Or at least make him grovel and beg and go and do some penance, right? But what do we see from this father? Look at verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And so the father is looking for his son. He hasn't cut him off. He hasn't given up looking for him. He sees him while he's far off. And the Greek word for he had compassion on him speaks of deep affection. His insides tightened up when he saw him. He catches his breath. And he sees him. And he runs. He runs. And we're like, whatever, he runs. That was not what patriarchs did. These dignified patriarchs never ran. It was, they were too honorable, too honorable for that. They would not let themselves be seen caught dead running. And yet this father doesn't care. He runs to his son and throws his arms around his neck and kisses him. And the son tries to get his speech out, right? He tries to get it out and say, I'm going to work for you. And his father won't even listen to it. He interrupts him and he says, get the best robe, get the ring, get the sandals, put them on his feet, cover him up. These are all beautiful symbols of his sonship being restored to him. He's being clothed. He's being covered. He's being received back in full as a son. And not only that, his father shamelessly celebrates his arrival in the presence of everyone. We're throwing a party. I'm not ashamed of this son. He's home. And I'm glad. Let's celebrate. And he boldly declares in verse 14, this my son, in front of everyone. He's my son. He was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And so the father refuses to punish him. He refuses to put him on penance and probation. He restores him completely. He refuses to shame him. Instead, he honors him. He celebrates him with a feast in his honor. And so to conclude this point, what do we see from this? 
What are we meant to see? We're meant to be utterly shocked at the beauty of this Father and what He's just done. How it's not what you would expect from a typical sinful first century father. And yet at the same time, it's so self-evidently beautiful that even a first century patriarch would have to say, it is good. This is good. This is what should happen. And yet patriarchs were so bound by the social conventions of their time, bound by their honor and their own pride, that they wouldn't have done this. And yet any father would know, I I would want my boy back. And any son and any daughter would want a father like this. So we're meant to look at this father and be in awe. Look at him running. What does this mean? What does this mean? It means that our father... He, he has cast aside his dignity to redeem us. He casts aside his dignity. He, our God stepped down and laid aside his own dignity to lay hold on us, to embrace us. Right? What is the cross? The cross is a shameful thing. And our God the Lord of glory, said, I will embrace that shame so I can lay hold on my sons and daughters and I'll do it gladly and I will not be ashamed of them. I will receive them all back with hugs and kisses. What a father, what a God that Jesus is painting here for us. John says it this way in 1 John 3. He says, look what otherworldly love this is that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. And so we are. And the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You see what he's saying? The world cannot understand us because it doesn't understand this God. It doesn't understand his love. It's not normal. It's beyond good. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And so, Jesus tells this story of the younger son in order to force the Pharisees to face up to the beauty of the Heavenly Father's heart, the God that they claim to worship and pray to, and say, look at him, this is what he's like, and guess what, it's not a new story. If you knew your own story, you would know that Israel has always been the prodigal and they've continually gone astray and he's continually received them back the same way. You should know this. Why do I eat with sinners? Because the father is this kind of father and I'm his true son. And that's just half the story though. We have to pause and we have to transition now and look at the second half of the story. We have to look at the refusing son. The story takes a darker turn at the end. Consider the refusing son now. Verses verse 25, we're introduced to the older brother, a new character. And where is he? He's working dutifully in the field. 
He's doing exactly what a faithful son should be doing. He is, by all accounts, externally the perfect son. All the mothers in Israel would be like, that's the son I want. He's never left home. (laughs) He's only ever shown honor to the family and his father by dutiful obedience. Look at this boy. Isn't he great? And yet internally something is wrong and something sick in his heart and it's going to come bubbling up right now because of what his father just did for his younger brother. So the older brother learns of how his father has received him so unabashedly, so freely, and that he's actually thrown a feast in his honor. And verse 28 says he was angry and he refused to go in, which is a significant refusal because what he's doing is he's refusing to acknowledge his brother. He's not my brother. I'm not going in. And this is explicit in verse 29 when he's talking to his father and he won't call him his brother. He says, this son of yours, he's no brother of mine. So his refusal expresses deep contempt for his brother, but it's also expressing a contempt for his father because of what his father has just done. He sees this act of grace, lavish grace, as a disgraceful thing. How could you do this? I deserve the honors. And look at what you're doing for him. He deserves nothing. He deserves to be punished. I've been working. I deserve the honors. And his view of his father is actually very much the same as the younger son's view of his father before he ran away. Look, listen to how the Christian Standard Bible translates verse 29. It says, Look, I have been slaving many years for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. You see how this older brother actually sees his sonship as slavery and oppressive and repressive, and he He sees his father as a kind of militant slave driver. And he sees that he thinks his father has been withholding from him. You've been stingy. You haven't been giving me what I deserve this whole time. Yeah, he obeyed his father. He's done everything he's supposed to do. He's remained geographically close. He's obeyed every word but not because he has love for his father, not out of love. He sees his father as a slave driver, and he relates to his father as a laborer, as a hired worker. And he turns after he obeys, and he says, I have the right to demand honors from you because of what I've done for you. That's not how a son relates to a father, a true, a true son to a true father. That's not love. And so the whole time he's been playing this part, this is moralism. This is religiosity. This is what it looks like. And it's not the way of Christianity. It's opposed to Christianity. It's anti-Christianity, this attitude. To say, I do for you 
God, so that you will do good for me. I've done this and this and this. I've had a good week. I deserve honor. I deserve benefit. All the benefits of my sonship are the result of what I have been pumping out every day in service to you. Now pay up. That's moralism. That's religiosity. That's not Christianity. It's, it's law. It's not gospel. And so when this son sees his brother getting what he thought he had rightfully earned, it's too much for him. And in, in the face of grace, grace has completely upended his whole system, his whole way of operating, his whole way of relating to his father. What his father just did completely destroys that system. It doesn't make any sense anymore. And the only way this son can actually enter into the feast and embrace his brother is if he casts aside that system and said, that was wrong. I repent. I throw it aside. He can't enter in. He can't hug his brother again until he realizes he's been wrong the whole time. He's been doing it wrong the whole time. And so his father pleads with him in verse 28, lay it down, lay down your self-righteous indignation and join us. Embrace your brother. And in verse 31, he tries to show the fittingness of it. Look how fit it, this is what should happen. We ought to be celebrating and rejoicing, right? And the story ends that way, with the father pleading with the son with his older son. The story ends with his son refusing to acknowledge his brother, refusing to enter in to the joy of his father's grace. He despises it. And so the twist in the story is actually that the real prodigal is the son who stayed. The real prodigal is the son who's been obeying And we don't, we don't even hear how shocking this would have been because what Jesus is saying as he points this story at the Pharisees and scribes, he's saying the real prodigals are the pastors of Israel. It's shocking. And so, summing up the main point, we need to see that what Tim Keller says about this, this story really is just theologically understand that the moral, religious people and immoral, irreligious people both go astray in different ways because both are attempting to be their own, to find their own salvation, to be their own saviors. They're being their own Lord and Savior in their own way, in different ways. It looks really different. One's geographically far, the other's geographically close. But they have the same heart toward their father. They see him the same way. They have not been transformed by grace. And only Jesus offers a different path. But the beauty of this story is its open-endedness, too. Because Jesus is actually appealing to the Pharisees. Jesus loves the Pharisees. He's saying, come, come to my table. He, he's not just casting off the Pharisees. He's, he loves the Pharisee. 
He loves the older brother as he loves the younger brother. And he wants both at his table. And so to conclude, wrap up this story, we need to return to the first question we asked. Do you know God? Do I know God? Do we know who this Heavenly Father is and what he's like? When you sit down to pray and you say, Father, what comes to your mind? Some of us need our vision of the Father corrected, and Jesus wants to do that with this story. When you say Father, do you think love, compassion, delight, mercy, security, affection, joy and gladness, celebration? Or do you think austere, cold, exacting, withholding? We all need to repent because we all tend to see the Father in this way, I think. Unless I'm the only one. See, both the Pharisees and Jesus claimed to know the same Heavenly Father, but the Pharisees thought of him as an austere, withholding master. He's too holy. You don't deserve him. He's too holy. And Jesus said, he is holy, but he's loved. He's full of grace. He's quick to forgive. He's quick to embrace the unworthy. Don't you know him? And so he pleads with Pharisees and with prodigals. He pleads with them today. He pleads with us today. Come and enter into the feast of grace. Jesus was glad to eat with sinners because when these sinners who had wrecked their lives with their own foolishness and deserved nothing but hell and judgment, when these sinners came to Jesus and experienced his life-transforming love, they were coming home to the Father. They were returning to the Father. That's the, such is the union between the Father and the Son. John 14, 9, Philip says to Jesus, Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Jesus embodied the love of his heavenly Father a love that extended to the unworthy, a love that extended to those who had wrecked themselves with sin, those who had made a living out of sinning and extended it to those who thought they were too good and thought that they had deserved all the benefits they were getting. And so we need to see this. Our Father, we need to recognize that our Father is not cold toward us today. The Heavenly Father is not cold toward sinners who've gone astray. He's not cold toward the legalistic. He sent His only Son. 
He was not passive. He was not withholding. He gave his son for us all. And driven by that same love of the Father, the true Son of the Father left his heavenly home and sought us out. He did what the older brother in the story failed to do because he was too concerned about his own salvation. He was too concerned about his own stuff, about earning his own way. He, this is what, but Jesus, Jesus, the true Son of the Father, went out and found us. He finds us wallowing in our misery, wallowing in our uncleanness. And he says, live. He says, live. And he willingly traded his life for our life so that we could know the embrace of the Father and we could taste it and we could experience the beauty of it today. You can experience it again and fresh today. We all fall back and forth between being older brotherish and younger brotherish. We all have an inadequate view of the Father this morning. And Jesus is calling us back to the Father, saying, look at me. Come to me. Come to the feast of grace. And in coming to Jesus, we come to the Father's love. We receive it. We bask in it. He will take us. He'll take every prodigal into the ineffable love of the Father. And he puts his arm around us as our older brother. And he says, come taste what I know, what I've tasted. Feast at the table of grace today. May God help each one of us today enter in to the feast of grace and rejoice in our glorious Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Our Father, our beautiful, loving, gracious, sovereign, holy Father, we thank you for your great love for lost sinners. Help us now to lay hold upon Christ, to see in him all our sin removed, all righteousness fulfilled, and to taste the banquet of grace again. In Christ's name we pray.